0: We're going to be in Romans chapter 11 this morning, Romans chapter 11. And uh, as we dive into Romans 11, uh, some of you may know that uh, our own Trey Stevens is a professional artist. And so this week I asked Trey if he ever takes any pictures of his works while they're in progress to document the progress of, of a painting. And he said, absolutely. And, and I said, would you be willing to send me some? And he said, sure, and so he sent me a couple of different works in progress. I'm just going to show you one this morning, just the stages of one of his, one of his works. So, so this was stage one, and uh, when I saw this, I thought, I could be a painter. I could actually do this. Uh, this looks great, you know, so uh, I was like, all right, so, so then, you know, I, I'm not going to show you all of the stages that he sent me, but, you know, a little bit further on in the process, uh, there's this, so you look at that and you're like, all right, what is this? What are we looking at here? Um, you know, you, maybe some clouds, maybe some sky, which is what it is. So, so here, here was stage three, right? So you begin to see some mountaintops emerging and, and the clouds emerging. Um, you know, stage four, the trees start to come in. Uh, the snow on the mountaintops became a bit more vivid. All right, keep going, all right? So now we're getting really close to, to what it's probably gonna look like at the end. And then uh, here, was the, here was the final product, which is beautiful. Absolutely amazing. Um, so, so I saw all of that and I thought, man, that's, that's really astounding to see how the painting comes together over time. But then I thought, you know, what if I commissioned Trey to paint me this scene and then I came into his studio while he was at this stage and I said, Trey, that's just a red canvas. But what I've paid you for is a beautiful mountain view this beautiful painting, and I go, this isn't what I paid you for, what are you doing? And Trey, Trey would say to me, hey, you gotta be patient, right, you have to wait, I've got a plan. Uh, and, I, and I'd say, well, this doesn't look like a great plan, right, it's just, it's just a red canvas, and he's like, you gotta trust me, I've got a plan to get from here all the way to the beauty of the mountain scene that you commissioned me to paint, and, and if I trusted him enough uh, with my money to paint this painting, then I ought to be able to trust the artist enough to say, okay, you've got a plan, a good plan to get from stage one to the end of the painting, that that you've got a good plan as an artist to put it all together well. Now, why do I share that? Because as we read the book of Romans, and especially Romans 9 through 11, we get the clear sense that we are living right now in the middle of God's plan, that God has a plan to save for himself men and women from every tribe tongue people and nation including Jew and Gentile to establish a kingdom that is composed of people from every tribe tongue people and nation where there's perfect peace no more sin no more death no more no more enemies right and all all of God's plans are going to come to fruition, but right now we're in the middle of the plan. And in the middle of the plan, it can be hard to trust that the plan is gonna complete itself successfully, or that God's gonna complete the plan successfully. And yet as we read Romans nine, we hear the apostle Paul saying, I want you to trust me that God's plan is going to come together. Romans nine through 11 especially deals with God's plan for the nation of Israel. And if you followed with us up to this point in Romans, you'll remember the essence of the book of Romans is that the gospel is the good news. That by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, anybody can have eternal life. And you remember Romans 1, 16 to 17, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. He said to the Jew first and then also to the Greek that God has a plan uh, to work among his chosen people, the Jewish nation, and then from there to move outward and save people from amongst the Gentiles. But the idea is everybody has access to all of the blessings of God's kingdom through Jesus Christ. However, As we saw in Romans 9 and Romans 10, if God's promises to us are true, and if once God makes a promise, that promise can never be revoked, if we have eternal life for free that can never be taken away because God is a promise keeper, then what do we do about the fact that the nation of Israel, for the most part, has rejected Jesus, their Messiah, And so Romans 9 is not just a question of what do we do about the nation of Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 deals with a question of God's character. Because God had made lavish promises to the people of Israel, promises that he would bless them, that he would give them a land, that he would give them a kingdom where there would be a descendant of David who would reign forever in peace and security over the nation of Israel. So, so, when you go back to the Old Testament and you begin to see how these promises are laid out, the promises of God to the people of Israel begin all the way in Genesis 12 with Abram, who is later known as Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the father of the nation of Israel. God says to Abram, The Lord said to Abram, Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to make you And your descendants into a great nation. I'm gonna bless y'all. I'm gonna give you guys a land. And from there, you will be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. Now, we find out later on that Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who mediates those blessings to all the nations of the earth. He's the perfect Israelite, the perfect human being, the son of God in human form, who now becomes the conduit through which the promised blessings to Abraham are extended to all of the nations. As you move further into the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with King David in 2 Samuel. And he says, David, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. That they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. All right. So peace in the land. Then he goes on. He says, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he says, David, from your line is going to come a king, a descendant who will reign in the land over the nation of Israel in peace and security forever, right? For all of the rest of time. And so as we look at the nation of Israel, what we see is the subsequent history of the nation of Israel after David. You know, King Solomon, he expanded the boundaries of the land. But Solomon disobeyed God in, in many ways. And then Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam takes over the kingdom, and Rehoboam ends up splitting the kingdom into two kingdoms. So now you've got a divided kingdom, and both the north kingdom and the southern kingdom within Israel— have a series of kings and a series of generations that are unfaithful to God. They are idolatrous and disobedient. And so what does God do? He exiles them from the land. But in the midst of their exile and discipline, now we get another promise. We see it in Jeremiah 31. In the midst of this exile, God makes another promise to the nation of Israel. He says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That, that covenant is the law. It's what we know as the Mosaic law, that old covenant. He says, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And then Jeremiah goes on to describe how the people will live in the land. He describes the borders of the land. So the idea is, hey, Israel, a day is coming when regardless of the fact that you've disobeyed and wandered from God, God will restore your hearts, God will forgive your sin, God will establish you in the land just as he promised to David and he'll do it forever. All right, so the dilemma then at the heart of Romans 9 through 11 is if God has made these promises to the nation of Israel and those promises are received by faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the Messiah, then why is it that most of the nation of Israel has not believed in Jesus. And does that mean that all these promises God made to the nation of Israel, he's just set them aside? Does it mean that now as Gentile Christians, as the Gentile church, we've just replaced Israel, right? All those promises to Israel, that's Old Testament stuff. Now we're in a new era and the church has replaced the nation of Israel. Is that what it means? That's what Romans 9 through 11 is dealing with. Paul is going to give an emphatic no to the question of whether or not God has abandoned Israel. That's where he's taking us. Romans 9, Paul reminded us that God's decision to to save some has always been based on the principle of election. In other words, an Israelite was never saved just because they were a descendant of Abraham, right? So remember, he says, okay, you had Isaac, you had Ishmael. The promises only came to Isaac. Then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. The promises only came to Jacob. God has always chosen some and not others. Then Romans 10, last week, we talked about, well, if that's true, why are people still held responsible to believe in Jesus? And so Paul systematically explained, everybody's responsible because God's mercy is great. Everybody has an opportunity to respond to Jesus in faith. So everybody is called upon, Jew and Gentile, to believe in Jesus. Romans 11 then how is God going to fulfill these national promises to the nation of Israel? What's he going to do? How is it going to come together? What's the canvas going to look like when it's complete? Here's the essence of where Paul goes. The gospel is good news because God's promises are reliable and his plan is perfect. He will fulfill his promises not only to you and me as recipients of salvation, but to the nation of Israel. Now, I realize that was a long introduction to Romans 11, but I think we need to understand the background that Paul is is talking about as he asks the question right at the beginning of Romans chapter 11. Has God rejected his people? Because this is more than just an issue again, of what's going to happen with the nation of Israel, this is a question of the character of God. If God made all those promises and he says, just kidding, I'm going to give all those promises to the Gentiles instead, that calls into question whether God, as we just sang a few minutes ago, keeps his promises. It calls into question Romans 8. If God says nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, and we go, well, wait a second. He made eternal promises to the nation of Israel also. So if he breaks those promises to them, how do I know he won't break his promises to me? That's what Paul is addressing. And he's going to say, God's promises are reliable and his plan is perfect. So follow with me as Paul develops this point. Romans 11. Here's the question. I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe, of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So here's the first principle from Romans 11. God is loyal to his people. God is loyal to his people. So so Paul asks this question. He goes, look, all right, has God rejected Israel? Has he just set those promises aside? And he says, no, may it never be. This is that Greek phrase. You see it uh, several times in Romans. Meganoito. It's a real strong negation. Heck no. God has not set aside his promises to Israel. And in fact, Paul cites himself as exhibit A. He says, by the way, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I am living proof that God is saving people from among the Jewish nation for his purposes. And in fact, Paul says, this is always what God has done, is he saved what he calls a remnant, a group within the nation of Israel who believe in Jesus, even if the remainder of the nation Rejects him, or a group that is faithful to God, even as the the majority of the nation is not. So, so Paul goes back to Elijah. You you remember Elijah? Elijah ministered as a prophet around 800 years before the coming of Christ. The king and queen uh, of Israel during most of Elijah's ministry were, were Ahab and Jezebel. Now, even if you don't know anything about the Bible, you probably know the name Jezebel. Right, because we literally use it as a, as a word for a wicked woman. Because that's how bad they were. They were murderous, they were violent, they were idolatrous, they were pagan. They led the nation of Israel into all manner of sin and apostasy. So here's Elijah trying to minister, trying to honor God. And you remember that, that really great scene, that showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where you know, God demonstrates his glory and his power by accepting this offering from heaven that Elijah puts out there, but the prophets of Baal can't get Baal to respond. And so then the prophets of Baal are all, are all put to death, right? And it's this wonderful moment, and we put it on a flannel board in Sunday school. Well, it's right after that that we have what Paul mentions here. Right after that, Jezebel gets upset and chases Elijah To kill him, Elijah runs off into the desert where he has a one man pity party. He says, God, God, I'm trying to be faithful to you, and now look what's happened. They've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets. Now they're coming after me. I'm the only one left. Right? Elijah is like maybe your, your teenage kids when they're like, Mom, Dad, you are the only parents that will not allow their nine year old to have TikTok. You're the only ones in the universe. And you're like, no, 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 no. I know, there are, I know there, there are others, right? You're the only parents who won't let me stay out until 2 a.m. on a school night, right? You're the only ones in the universe. And you're like, no, that, that is not true, right? I know there are others, right? Maybe, maybe more close to home, you've had moments in your life where you have been trying to serve the Lord in a setting where you feel alone. Right, and God says, Elijah, you're, you're not alone. There's a remnant. I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah needed to understand in the midst of an unfaithful nation, God was still preserving for himself a remnant. And so Paul now goes on and he says, uh, it's the same today. He goes, by the grace of God, even today, there's a remnant, and Paul's one of them, among the nation of Israel who believe in, in Jesus. And he goes, God has always preserved a remnant by his gracious choice. But remember, it's by grace, it's not by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The idea being that God has chosen according to his grace to save some among the nation of Israel. Just as he's chosen according to his grace to save some among the Gentiles. And so he says, God has not abandoned his people, but God is still working among his people. And I think we can say with confidence, you know, that that Even the existence today of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people is evidence that God has not abandoned his people. And in fact, the the, the reality that there are Jewish Christians who believe in Jesus among the nation of Israel, even today, is evidence that God has not abandoned his people. So th- there's two major um, ministries in the United States uh, toward the Jewish people to to share Jesus with them. Right? Two really big ones. There's there's a lot, but there's two really big ones. One is Chosen People. We actually, as a church, support Chosen People. And then there's also Jews for Jesus. Their websites have a number of statistics about uh, how many how many Jews there are worldwide today, which is about 16 million around the world. And then about, they estimate anywhere from 200,000 to 350,000 of the Jewish people are are Messianic Jews. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. So somewhere between 1% and 2%, right? And so you may be like, wow, 98% of the Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. But don't overlook that 2% do. And that that in and of itself is a miracle. And here's part of the reason for that. I'm gonna guess that nobody in this room has met a Hittite or an Edomite or an Ammonite or a Philistine or a Babylonian. All of the nations that surrounded Israel and tried to destroy them before the time of Christ. And even during the time of Christ, they're they're a footnote in history. We know about them many times simply because they're in the scripture. They're gone. They've been, they they were assimilated into other nations. They've disappeared. The only nation that has been preserved that long is the Jewish nation that continues to have this desire, in fact, to be in the land that God called Abraham to go to. Now, what does that mean? It means that the existence of the nation of Israel in and of itself, is evidence that God has not abandoned his people. It does mean that any group that tries to exterminate the the, the Jewish people is on the wrong side, not only of history, but of God. Because it's been tried and it's failed. It also means that God is still drawing to himself men and women from among both the Jewish nation and the Gentiles. Now that said, it does not mean That we say, okay, therefore, everything the modern state of Israel does is right and good. Because remember, as a nation, as a whole, this is Paul's argument. The nation of Israel currently is not responding in faith for the most part to the message of Jesus. But Paul would say, okay, God is loyal to his people. He's preserved them. He has a future for them. He has a plan for them, and he's preserving a remnant. Right? So God is loyal to his people, but also, also, as Paul has said throughout the book of Romans, God is merciful to all people, merciful to all people. In other words, he's not just saving Jews, he's also saving Gentiles. So follow with me, I'm going to read a lot of verses here, and then we'll break them down. But verses 7 to 24, what then, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. I say then, They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. There it is again. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for their world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, but they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? All right, so let me pause there. There's a lot that we just talked about, but the essence of it is this, that God says, okay, I have not abandoned the nation of Israel. I'm still working in them and among them. However, at the present time, God has allowed the hardening of the hearts of the majority of the nation of Israel because he wants to extend the mercy and grace of the gospel to the Gentiles as well. And Paul says the reason God has done that is that ideally as the Jewish people begin to see Gentiles trusting in their Messiah, they will also be stirred up to jealousy to say, I want to participate as well in the blessings of the kingdom. Why? Because those promises were for us, for the Jewish people first. And so we wanna be a part of what God is doing through Jesus. And so Paul says, I magnify my ministry in order that some may be prompted to jealousy, some of my own countrymen, so they would also come to know Jesus, right? The idea is that the disobedience of the nation of Israel paved the way for the blessing of the Gentiles. That's you and me. This reminded me of of an incident when I was a kid. I was maybe six or seven years old. And I had an older brother, and my older brother always got to stay up later than I got to stay up at night. I think his bedtime was like 9, mine was like 8, 8.30, something like that. What I remember, all I remember about this is that there was one day that my brother was, was acting the fool, disobedient, which was unusual for him. He was a typical firstborn, usually a pretty good kid, but he got in trouble. And, and all I remember, I don't remember exactly what he did, but he got in trouble. I remember the consequence. The consequence was that he had to go to bed at my bedtime and I got to stay up until his bedtime. Things got reversed. So I remember sitting, watching TV, eating snacks with, with my parents while Dan, my older brother, was already in bed with the lights off. And I I remember that because I thought, you know, in in my young mind, I didn't think it this way, but it's like his his disobedience and discipline has paved the way for my blessing and joy. Right? This is what Paul is saying, that the, the disobedience and subsequent discipline of the nation of Israel has paved the way for the Gentiles to come in. But he also says, don't forget, don't forget who those promises were made to. They were made to the nation of Israel. And so he says, look, don't grow arrogant against the chosen people of God saying, look, we're we're now better, we've now replaced them. We, We did what was right and they did what was wrong. He goes, no, no, no. It was a matter of God's mercy and grace you were grafted in, not because of your goodness, not because you deserved it, but because of their disobedience. And so what you see is if you read the book of Acts is often, in fact, almost always, the apostles will go and first they will share the gospel with uh, the, the Jewish people in the community. They'll go to the synagogue. But if it's rejected, they then leave the synagogue and they go preach to the Gentiles. The rejection of Jesus by the people of Israel paved the way for the Gentiles to hear the gospel. But, but here's, here's there then where Paul goes. He says, I want you to understand that God can work amongst one nation for a period of time, and then he can move and work amongst another nation. So when he says, look, don't be arrogant, but fear, you also can be cut off, he's not talking about losing salvation. He's not saying, because we've already seen Romans eight, you can't lose your salvation. He's not saying that God could take away salvation from those who believed in Jesus. He's talking about groups of people here. And he's saying, here's what I want you to understand. God has now turned to work among these Gentile nations. But Gentile nations, don't get arrogant. Americans, don't get arrogant thinking that you are somehow uniquely blessed by God in a way that God has chosen not to bless every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the earth. So so you think about it this way. For 2,000 years, more or less, God is working among the nation of Israel to give them the law, to reveal who he is, to make these promises. And then after the coming of Jesus, the gospel turns more toward the Romans and the Greeks who begin to believe in Jesus in large numbers for about four or five centuries. But then the the Roman Empire decays and degrades into corruption and disobedience and and evil. And so, so the gospel begins to move to other places in Europe and throughout the world. And then around the 16th and 17th century, there are massive revivals in England and Great Britain as the spirit of God begins to move and the gospel takes root in those areas. And then England begins to decline and degrade. And the gospel in the 18th through about the middle of the 20th centuries begins to grow and thrive in the United States. And then the United States is able to send missionaries around the world. But you know, in the last 30, 40 years, Christianity has begun to decline in the United States as our country has moved further from God. And now today, it's Latin America and Africa where the gospel is taking root and beginning to thrive. And so the idea is, just remember, God can move amongst any group of people at any time in any way. Don't get arrogant. And you say, well, I was grafted into these promises. The idea is that now as a Gentile, I have access to the promises of God, the promises that God gave to the nation of Israel. But don't forget you're still grafted in to somebody else's tree by God's mercy and grace. And so God is working in different nations in different areas of history to draw men and women from every tribe, tongue, people and nation to himself. He raises up a nation, he casts a nation down. He raises up kings, he casts kings down for his purposes. But now where Paul takes us is he says, I I want you to understand though, that God is still faithful to his promises to the nation of Israel. That God is not done with the nation of Israel as a whole because God made some special and unique promises to the nation of Israel that we saw at the beginning of the morning that he still intends to fulfill. This is where he takes us in verses 25 to 32. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, so that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up All in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him, that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. And so Paul ends this section, he goes, Look, I want you to understand. God is still going to fulfill these promises that the nation of Israel as a whole in the future will live on the land God promised them in peace and security under the reign of the messianic king, Jesus Christ, their savior. When will that happen? Well, I'll show you in just a minute. We believe this is happening in the future. If you were with us in the book of Revelation, we talked about this. But I wanna show you it's not just the New Testament that predicts this. It's the Old Testament as well. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like bitter weeping over a firstborn. There will one day, Zechariah says, be a national revival amongst the, the people of Israel Not that every Israelite from all of history will be saved, but that the nation as a whole will experience a national revival and turn back to their Messiah. Micah chapter seven. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob, and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. The day is coming when the nation of Israel will turn to their Savior. Now, again, if you were with us uh, in the book of Revelation, we said this is one of the reasons as a church we define ourselves as pre millennial because we believe that there is a future 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ described in Revelation but also described in Isaiah and throughout the scripture in which Jesus will reign on the earth from Jerusalem over the nation of Israel as God promised for 1,000 years until the new heavens and the new earth arrive. But the really crazy reality is that it won't only be Israelites in that thousand year kingdom now, it will be us as Gentiles who are grafted in through Jesus Christ to the blessings that God promised to the nation of Israel. You may remember this chart when we were in the book of Revelation. And I don't wanna go through it in a lot of detail, but notice the next event we believe on the prophetic timeline is the rapture of the church followed by this great tribulation period known as Jacob's trouble in the scripture. The idea is that as God is disciplining and judging the nations, the nation of Israel comes to repentance and revival. And then Jesus comes back and his kingdom begins, right? The reason that we are premillennial is not primarily because we like charts. It's because we believe God is a promise keeper. He keeps his promises to his people. And the day will come when the time of discipline and hardening will end and the time of blessing will come. When I was in elementary school, one day I got in trouble. I always, I, I always tended to get in trouble in class for um, laughing. I just would, somebody would say something and I would laugh and I couldn't control my laughter and so I would get in trouble and this particular teacher, I think it was my third grade teacher, her punishment for anybody that got in enough trouble was you had to write your numbers from one to one thousand. You had to sit down and write one to one thousand, which for a third grader might as well be like a billion, right? So I remember sitting there and I had to write one, two, three, four, you know, and as I'm doing it, I'm just like, this is this is like the hardest moment that I remember experiencing in that grade because I'm just broken and I'm crushed and I'm like, this is gonna go on forever and ever. And so so I wrote those numbers. I went home and I got off the school bus, came up my street. I saw my mom standing at the, uh, like in front of our house waiting for me. And I saw her and I, I just, when I saw her, I just burst into tears because I was just so like broken and upset by getting in trouble and this punishment. And, and I told her what I'd done and, and uh, you know, how it had gone in class. And I remember thinking she's going to ground me now because I got in trouble in school. And So my mom looks at me and she sees the tears. She sees the sorrow. She sees the pain. And I remember she said to me, I think you've been punished enough. Go play. Right? The the era of discipline gave way to the era of blessing. God says the day is coming when the era of discipline and hardening will give way to the era of blessing and renewal and revival, not only, for the people of Israel, but for Gentiles as well, who have been graciously grafted in to these promises that God made to his people. God's promises are reliable, his plan is perfect. And that's why Paul ends with this beautiful benediction talking about the grace of God, the plan of God, the wisdom of God. Because what Paul wants us to do from now through eternity is praise God for His grace. All have been shut up in disobedience so that all might be shown mercy. The mercy of God extends farther and wider than any of us could imagine. And so we praise Him for His grace. And we also trust His plan. If God can create the universe and author a plan to draw men and women to Himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, while keeping his promises to the people of Israel and keeping his promises of salvation to you and me, if God can do that perfectly, we can trust him on Monday morning. We can trust him when we don't understand what he's doing in our lives. We can trust him when we're like, I'm in the middle of whatever God is doing and I don't know how the canvas is gonna take shape, but I know he's good. I know he's got a plan. We know that the foundation of God's perfect plan for you and me is laid at the cross. That Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin and the sins of all mankind so that our rebellion and disobedience against God doesn't destroy us, but instead we can be shown mercy and grace. He rose again, validating that his sacrifice on our behalf was more than enough. And all who trust in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, will be saved by the grace of God so we can trust his perfect